We are in our series on the doctrine of Scripture. Last week we talked about the power of Scripture. This week we're talking about the authority of Scripture, and we talked about how power and authority go hand in hand. The issue of authority is as old as humanity. We ask ourselves, who has the right to demand obedience? Or who has the right to tell me what to do? Who is our judge? And just about as long as there's been authority, there's been resistance to authority. And we see it in our own our own culture today. Submission to authority has broken down in so many ways. It used to be, back in my day, I'm talking an old guy, I guess, but when children were misbehaving, any random adult in the vicinity could rebuke them and children would say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and at least pretend to straighten up. But nowadays, when you try to rebuke kids, they're more likely to just ignore you or give you a look of contempt or spew a torrent of profanity at you that would make a sailor blush. And this attitude towards authority has caused no end of trouble for schools and law enforcement. I heard a story just the other day about uh, a young man, he's in high school and he in Canada, and he had just had this really violent episode and the teachers couldn't subdue him at all and they weren't allowed to even really try. And so many... Schools are just saying, let the kids kind of do what they want. Some of you may be old enough to remember the anti-authority attitudes of the 1960s. Uh, anybody remember questioned authority bumper stickers? It is a long time ago. Interesting that those people who questioned authority weren't questioning the authority of those who told them to question authority. But anyway, the, these people weren't advocating a careful, reflective analysis of the powers that be to determine whether they were following moral principles the attitude behind this movement was, don't let anyone tell you what to do, make your own rules. Even going back a few hundred years to the Age of Enlightenment and John Locke and his idea of government with the consent of the governed. And in many ways, this idea has been a blessing, and I'm grateful that we can have some say in those who have authority over us, but if we're not careful, it can lessen our view of authority. That is, if you don't like the authority over you, you just get rid of it. And the temptation is to see who as the ultimate authority yourself. Even go back a few thousand years to the time of the judges, and that book has such story, stories of such brutality, such unrestrained wickedness, that frankly the book is hard to read in some places. And you may know the phrase which appears twice in that book, in those days there was no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And there was no strong authority in Israel, which led to what one writer called moral and social anarchy. And while we resist today the idea of governments taking too much authority over us, intruding into some areas of our lives where they don't belong, some governmental authority and power is necessary to restrain the wickedness of men. Go back even further to the Garden of Eden. Satan planted a seed of doubt in Eve's mind, not just about God's goodness, but about his authority to make demands of Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed, they denied by their actions God's authority over them. In fact, all sin defies God's authority to say what is right and wrong. I saw this problem with authority vividly demonstrated once. A 23-year-old man called into a radio show to disagree with the host's stance that a certain drug should be illegal. And this guy and his living girlfriend had been heavy users of an illicit drug for several years, and he claimed it had no adverse effect on him. During the course of the conversation, this young man claimed to be, in his words, a born-again Christian. 
The host asked him what this pastor thought about his drug use. He replied he didn't go to church. He just reads the Bible. And then he claimed further that it's just not a problem to do something you enjoy doing. Now, there are a lot of things that can be said about this guy, but he fundamentally resists authority. He resists the authority of the government. Well, he doesn't resist the authority of his church leaders because he hasn't bothered to join a church and be under their authority. And in all this, a man who says he reads his Bible has resisted the authority of the Bible. The Bible says he should be submissive to government authorities. The Bible says he should be a part of a body of believers and under the authority of church leaders. The Bible condemns fornication and intoxication. And it certainly doesn't back up his claim that it's not a problem to do something that you enjoy doing. And I'm afraid this pathetic young man is not alone. So many people live by self-made rules, and sadly, many of these people claim to be Christians. So let's go back to the questions I asked at the beginning. Who has the right to demand obedience? Who has the right to tell you what to do? Who is the judge? For Christians, the obvious answer is God. But God doesn't speak to us with an audible voice. He has made his will known to us in the scriptures. We call it God's word for a reason, don't we? God has the right to demand obedience. He has the right to tell us what to do. He is the judge. And because the Bible is God's word, it has the right to demand obedience. It has the right to tell us what to do, and it judges us. So as Christians, our authority must be the word of God. The scripture's authority is based on its source, which of course is God himself. As God's word, the Bible has authority over us. It can tell us what to believe and how to act. And when you hear the words, thus saith the Lord, you'd better listen. Wayne Grudem said this, The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. When you obey Scripture, you're obeying God. When you disobey Scripture, you're disobeying God. Now, we've talked in past weeks about the Bible's truthfulness and its inerrancy, and the authority is related to that. If it wasn't God's word, it wouldn't be authoritative. If it wasn't completely true and without error, we wouldn't be able to tell which parts were authoritative and which ones were not. I referenced some weeks ago the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and it says, recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture is essential to a full grasp an adequate confession of its authority. If the Bible is partly true, if I find a command I don't like, I can just say, that's not really God's word, that's just man's interpretation or man's opinion. But if it's all God's word, it's all God's truth, then we are under obligation to obey all of it. John Calvin said this, So long as your mind entertains any misgivings as to the certainty of the word, its authority will be weak and dubious, or rather it will have no authority at all. Nor is it sufficient to believe that God is true and cannot lie or deceive unless you feel firmly persuaded that every word which proceeds from him is sacred and viable truth. Now the idea of the authority of Scripture is not popular today in our culture. Many might be happy for us if we believe the Bible is authoritative, but if we say the Bible has authority over them, they often react angrily. Ever try that on Facebook? I'm not sure I recommend it. 
somebody says something and you say, well, the Bible says, and you just wait for the, <laughs> the flame wars to start. That's just life nowadays. <clears throat> no one is supposed to claim that his beliefs are any more right or any more authoritative than anyone else's. And even though it doesn't make any logical or spiritual sense to believe that contradictory views can all be right, they hold on tight to that belief. You can have your views, I have my views, they may be different, but we can just have them and it's all the truth, all my own truth. One of the favorite scriptures of these sorts of people is, judge not, lest you be judged. And if you try to tell them what they're doing is wrong, they snap back, judge not, lest you be judged. So you might change your approach and say, okay, the Bible says what you're doing is wrong. They'll say again, judge not, lest you be judged. They'll take Jesus' condemnation of hypocrisy as a blanket statement that no one anywhere is ever to be criticized for anything, especially themselves. It's ironic that they use the very words of Scripture to cancel out its authority in their minds. And unfortunately, in the church today, while it may claim the absolute authority of Scripture, it too often shrinks back from proclaiming the truth too loudly in order to avoid offense. John MacArthur said this, Biblical truth is to be proclaimed with authority, not put on the table for discussion as just one possible alternative to other points of view. The conflict between biblical truth and competing beliefs is not a matter to be settled by dialogue. This is spiritual warfare, not a tea party. It should be seen as combat, not a conversation. We are commanded to pull down the strongholds of unbiblical thinking, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity and to the obedience of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10.5. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, we should be harsh, arrogant, or obnoxious in our defense of the truth. Some defenders of the faith seem to relish the fight and go out of their way to cause offense and hurt feelings. They wear it as a badge of honor when they have bullied someone with the truth. So on the one hand, there are those who want to preach the gospel without giving offense, which is impossible. On the other hand, those who may preach the gospel in such an obnoxious way that they themselves become the offense. And we can be courteous and kind in our proclamation without giving an inch of the truth. And if we are persecuted, we're persecuted. If we are hated, we are hated. But let it not be because we ourselves were hateful. Well, let's see what the Scripture says about its own authority. And we'll start first with Jesus' view of the authority of Scripture. And we'll look just right just today at the book of Matthew. We see Jesus a number of times confronting falsehood with Scripture. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. We won't have time to go in depth on all these passages. I'm just going to be reading a number of things, making a few comments, and moving on. Matthew 4. And Jesus, it says here, verse 1, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on, on, on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And here Satan is quoting Psalm 91. Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So when Jesus here was tempted, he could have rebuked Satan on his own authority. He could have called down a legion of angels to bind Satan and throw him into the abyss. Or he could have annihilated Satan on the spot. Yet Jesus rebuked Satan with scripture. Jesus could have appealed to his own authority, but he appealed to the scripture, which amounts to the same thing. Turn over another chapter to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, down to verse 19. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, we see the, the authority of Scripture here that Jesus is saying this, this is forever. He didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. And he's fulfilling this not just in keeping the law perfectly, but because he himself was the fulfillment of all the law pointed to. Just as one example, he was the high priest, the sacrifice which the high priest and sacrifices in the Old Testament foreshadowed. So in all those ceremonial parts of the law, he was the fulfillment of those. And verse 18, Jesus says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. We might say in English, not an eye will pass away, not even the dot of an eye will pass away until all is accomplished. Not till the end of time, at which point the law will have accomplished its final judgment of the wicked, and the righteous will obey it perfectly and completely. And so we are not even to annul the least of these commandments, that is, by ignoring it or altering it or disobeying it. We see the, the word of God as it truly is, God's word, and we are under its authority. We cannot change it. Verse 21 of Matthew 5. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus here quotes a couple of scriptures, a couple of the Ten Commandments. And he's not contrasting his words with the law, but he's contrasting uh, his words with the shallow interpretation of the law, where those who hadn't actually committed adultery or murdered would congratulate themselves for their piety. But it's not good enough to keep the law on the outside. We must keep the law on the inside, and none of us can do that. Turn over to chapter 11, Matthew 11. It's interesting here that Jesus establishes his authority by appealing to Scripture. I'll get to Matthew 11, verse 2. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to him, Go and report to John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So Jesus shows that he himself is the one who is to come because of the scriptures, in, in this case, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. We also see John the Baptist. Um, Jesus speaks of him in verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I sent my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So John the Baptist himself fulfills this prophecy in Malachi as Jesus fulfills the prophecies, particularly in Isaiah 53 or 35 and 61. Let's look next at Matthew 15. Again, establishing Jesus' view of the authority of Scripture when he needed to appeal to something to to show that what he was saying himself was true, he would appeal to Scripture. Verse 1, Matthew 15. Then some scribes and Pharisees uh, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. So Jesus here, when he is confronting the Pharisees and the scribes for their hypocrisy, again, he uses the scriptures to point it out to them. The scripture is the authority over their own traditions. One of the problems with the scribes and Pharisees is that they would take their own interpretations, their own laws, and give them authority over God's word. Jesus says those are inverted. God's word is the authority. Your traditions are are merely that man's traditions. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, the Pharisees are once again testing Jesus. Verse 3 says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his brother, or his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So in this interchange with the Pharisees, who from what we can tell, were a little loose, or very loose, with the divorce laws back then. Uh, they were testing Jesus. Jesus went back to Genesis. But Jesus doesn't quote God directly in this case. Uh, God himself didn't, didn't use the words, created the male and female. Jesus is quoting the narrator of the book of Genesis, and yet that still has authority over them. So it's not as though people will, say, go to the, the Bible and say, well, if Jesus said it, then I'll do it. 
but other things like Paul or Peter, other, other people like that, are less authoritative than Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't treat the scripture that way. He didn't say, I only believe what God directly said in quotes, but he believes what the, the writers of the scripture say. It's what Moses commanded and what the other writers of, of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, had said. So when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, even indirectly, he's always quoting from God. Chapter 22. Matthew 22. Here Jesus makes an argument based on the simple verb tense. And again, he is using the authority of Scripture to, to, to teach. Matthew 22, verse 32. Sorry, 23 to 32. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies... Having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. And then they tell the story. We'll skip to verse 29 for the sake of time. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So by the authority of Scripture, Jesus can establish the fact that it is a resurrection just on the basis of the the verb, I am. Not I was, but I am. Just the tense of that verb shows that there will be a resurrection. A couple more passages in Matthew. Matthew 22, still, verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Quoting Psalm 110. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? So Jesus puzzles the Pharisees with this question, but he uses scripture to establish the fact that this Messiah, this Christ, who is the son of David, well, this Palm Sunday, Hosanna to the son of David, and yet he is also David's Lord. How can this Messiah be David's son, yet David's Lord? Jesus establishes that fact from Scripture. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 31. This is after or, or during the Lord's Supper. They've gone to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus says, verse 31, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Jesus here is quoting Zechariah 13, verse 7. And Jesus says, It must be this way. Uh, you may rather this weren't the case, and Peter denies that he will deny Christ. But the truth is, Based on Zechariah 13, all of you will fall away from me this night. We can speak that with authority. And then, further in chapter 26, verse 51. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? 
and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. So Jesus could have, on his own authority, saved himself. But he had to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus himself, the Son of God, was under the authority of scripture. He would not sidestep the cross because he must fulfill the scriptures, among other things. So Jesus submits to the scriptures' authority. How much more ought we to do so? Now, we've seen Jesus' view of the authority of scripture. Let's look at Peter. And we'll start in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. After Jesus has gone back up to heaven... It says in Acts one fifteen, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. Then verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. And then it says, verse 21, Therefore it is necessary that all the, of the men who have accompanied us all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So Peter's saying we must replace Judas in this group of the twelve, we must do that because the scriptures say so. It's going to happen this way. This is what was prophesied in Psalm 69. So we will do what the scriptures say. In fact, verse 16 says the scripture had to be fulfilled. Did Judas act of his own accord? Yes, he wasn't a victim. Satan certainly led him, but it was also a fulfillment of scripture. So in that in a sense, Judas was doing what the scriptures had foretold of him. Acts chapter 2, verse 25. Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost, and he again appeals to Scripture. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says this, verse 25. For David says of him, that is of Christ, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. He's quoting here Psalm 16. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted, Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. I'll, again, stop for time, but we can read further down through verse 36. And Jesus here appeals to Psalms 116 and Psalm 110, that Jesus was the fulfillment of these scriptures. These things had to happen this way. This man, Jesus, who was the Christ, he showed who he was because he fulfilled the scriptures. Also, if you look at Peter's letters, there are many quotations of the Old Testament in them, and we don't have time to go through them, but you can read them yourself at some, some time and see all the times that, that Peter establishes his 
teachings on what the Old Testament has said. Let's also look at Second Peter chapter 1, and we'll see what Peter says about the Holy Scriptures. He says, verse 19 of Second Peter 1, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You could say in verse 19, we have the more, we have the prophetic word made more sure. You could say even, we could have the even surer prophetic word. We have this sure word from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we must interpret and understand those in that way as, as being God's word and be under its authority as he teaches through the rest of his writings. Now one last person will look at Paul's view of the authority of scripture. Again, we don't have time to go in great depth. But look at Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, starting verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Though how did Paul establish that Jesus was the Christ? He reasoned with them from the scriptures because the scriptures say so. The Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The scriptures say it and Jesus fulfills these things. So listen to me, listen to what I say about this man, Jesus. In verse 11, it says, These, that is, the people in Berea, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So they would believe Paul if Paul was properly interpreting and teaching the scriptures. When they, when they saw what Paul had said in the Old Testament, they believed it. And, and welcome the word of Paul. So Paul was not preaching some new novel thing, but it was something grounded in the word of God. Let's look at Romans. And throughout this letter, Paul appeals again and again to scriptural authority as he's making his case for justification by faith alone. Romans one seventeen, Paul says that uh, in, in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, quoting Habakkuk 2, the righteous man shall live by faith. So, uh, Romans 3, when Paul's trying to establish the fact that we are all under sin. Romans 3, verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And he could appeal to the fact that it's obvious, what well, could be more obvious, that we're all under sin. But he says, as is written, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, in the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So here, Paul, to make this case about the, the sinfulness of man, he quotes Psalms 14, 53, 5, 140, verse, uh, and 10, and then Isaiah 59, and then Psalm 36. So many quotations from the Old Testament to demonstrate that we are under sin. And then Romans 4. Paul is trying to establish that Paul was justified by faith. What then, verse 1, shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's Psalm 32. In this blessing, then, on the, is this blessing on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to him as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So Abraham was justified by faith, not because of being circumcised or any other good thing he did, but before he was circumcised, and that was on purpose in God's plan that Abraham would believe God before he himself was circumcised, lest anyone think that you are saved or justified through circumcision or keeping the works of the law. Chapter 9, we won't go through this, but in this chapter, Paul demonstrates God's sovereignty and salvation by remembering God's choice of Abraham or Jacob over Esau and God's rejection of Pharaoh. Again, he, again, he quotes the Old Testament to make his case. Uh, chapter 11, uh, verse 25, says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So here Paul is quoting Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27. Romans 12, 19. One more verse here. Paul says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 32. So, Paul again and again, and we can look at others in Romans, others in the rest of his letters. We could talk about James, John, the writer of Hebrews, and so on. But this will suffice for now. When the writers of the New Testament wanted to, to explain, to justify, to give authority to their words, what did they do? They quoted scripture. They went back to the word of God. They didn't say, this is my opinion, this is what I think is best. Sometimes Paul would give his opinions, but in the main, Paul would ground his teaching on the truths of the Old Testament. Now, let me just continue with another point that I made last week. We looked at the power of Scripture. We saw that this discussion of the power and authority of Scripture is academic, unless we have the Spirit. 
the Westminster Confession says this, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the, of the scripture, that is, we might think the scripture is, is God's word, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And Calvin said, For as God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word, so also the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is scaled by the inward testimony of the Spirit. That same Spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets, must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they are faithfully proclaimed what have been divinely commanded. Now, I've quoted the Confession and John Calvin as my authorities, but let's quote the Scripture as authority. Let's, more importantly, what does the Scripture say about the work of the Spirit in the heart? Look at 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Just as it is written, this is Isaiah 64, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may freely know the things given to us by God, which things we speak, we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the Spirit enables us to understand the Scriptures, opens up the Scriptures to us, and then as we understand them, we submit to his authority with great joy. Let's just, let me say a few words in conclusion here. First of all, this is an application to myself and all those who teach in the church. Uh, Listen to Titus 2.15, and Paul's reminding Titus of how Christians ought to live. He says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So however unpopular it may be, we are to speak with authority. And we are to let no one disregard, despise, or disparage us. But the authority of our words only extends as far as our words match up with the word of God. Otherwise, our hearts are, our words rather, are just human opinion. I don't want to be up here teaching my opinions. Um, maybe I have a blog to teach my opinions or something, but my opinions don't really matter very much. But if I'm speaking the word of God, then that's where the authority comes from. Sometimes, years ago, when I wanted one of my children to do something, but I wasn't close enough to do it without shouting or getting up, I would send another child as a messenger, and I'd say, tell your brother to go get on his pajamas and brush his teeth. And most often, the message comes back a minute later, Daddy, he's not doing it. And so I change my message and say, 
tell your brother, daddy said, to get on his pajamas and brush his, brush his teeth. So the child wasn't inclined to do what his sibling says on his own authority. But when the sibling is sent on behalf of the parent with the parent's message, message, this carries the parent's authority, and disobedience to the message means disobedience to the parent himself with the threat of consequences to disobedience. The first Peter 4.10 says, Whoever speaks, it is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And all teachers of the word should be able to say, I'm saying these things to you, not because I say so, but because God says so. A second thing to think about. Ask ourselves as parents, what do your children learn from you about authority? And we certainly teach more by our actions than our words, don't we? Do your children see clear lines of authority in your home? The trend today is to blur the distinction between children and parents, for parents to be buddies with their children and ever crossing their wills. And this is probably not a common problem here, but it's a temptation we should be warned against. Do you demand your children's subjection to your authority as parents, or do they regularly get away with flouting your authority? And if they don't learn to submit to parental authority, chances are very good they won't learn to submit to other authorities either. So you might think, well, I don't really want to cause trouble, but if you're teaching your children they can get away with resisting authority in the home, that's going to transfer into authorities, the the police and the, the government, and it's going to translate into authority of who? Of God, right? If you don't, if they don't see that there are consequences for disobeying authority, they're not going to care what God thinks either. They don't care what you think. Now, this becomes more difficult, if not impossible, to accomplish as children get older, so it's important to establish authority from an early age. And children don't only learn about authority by seeing their relationship between themselves and their parents, but also by seeing how parents relate to authority. So do your children see you submitting to the authorities over you? Are you respectful and prayerful prayerful towards them? What do your children hear you say about your boss? What do they hear you say about your pastors? Wives, what do they hear you say about your husband? Husbands, what do they hear you say about your wife? If you are contemptuous and demeaning of your spouse in front of your children, how do you expect them to treat that parent any differently? What do your children hear you say about the policeman who pulled you over, wrongly in your opinion? What do they hear you say about your own parents? While you are no longer under your parents' authority, you are still to honor them, especially in front of their grandchildren. If someone were to ask your children what mommy and daddy think of the president, what would they say? Or to be nonpartisan, partisan, maybe the last president or president before that, uh, they would say maybe, oh, daddy hates him, or mommy thinks he's evil. Or they complain about him all the time. Or would they say instead, mommy and daddy disagree with him, or but they pray for him a lot and ask God's blessing on him. It's been hard lately to have men in power who are contemptible in many ways, and we could list them, probably have in the past, but they are still the authorities over us, God's authorities over us, and we need to pray for them and to submit to their authority in the sphere of their authority. And if you have contempt for authority routinely, don't be surprised if your children do the same. The contempt your child learns from you for your boss or the government authorities may one day be transferred to you or to God himself. Now, there may be legitimate grievances sometimes, but they should be expressed, if at all, carefully, without sinning by grumbling or slandering, and in an age-appropriate manner. The talks I have with my kids now about 
politics are different from the ones I had with them 10 years ago. Of course, other older children are more capable of understanding that we can disagree profoundly with authority, but still maintain a Christian respect for them. A third point. Again, for parents, who's the, or what's the authority in your house? What's the authority in your house? And I hope it's the scripture. Do children see you submitting to the Bible? Do they see you making decisions based on what you see in scripture? Do they see you overcoming sin with the help of scripture? Do they see you repenting based on being convicted by scripture? On the other hand, do your children see you in blatant, unrepentant disregard for the commands of scripture? Do they see a lack of interest in the things of God? Do they continually see your pride? Do they see you shading the truth? Do they see you losing your temper? Do they see you consumed by worry? Do they see you using coarse language? Do they see bitterness in your relationships? Do they see you acting in an unloving way? I think all these things uh, hit home with me, asking these questions. My children have seen that in me from time to time. But when children see parents' sin, it can be a powerful testimony for a parent to confess that sin to the children, asking forgiveness when necessary, and letting them see you humble yourself before the Lord and overcome the sin with an open Bible. Parents need to be careful about airing dirty laundry, and it's not advisable to confess to your children every sin in their life, but certainly if they are witnesses to it, they should see you deal with it in a biblical manner. Don't say to yourself, well, I sin publicly or I sin before my kids, but I'll confess privately just between me and the Lord. It's not biblical, and it robs your children of seeing the whole picture, that even mommy and daddy are sinners need a forgiveness. So don't let your children see the sin without seeing the repentance. And just as it is it a powerful message when children see their parents repent, it's also a powerful message to the children when they see parents sinning with no apparent pangs of conscience. As damaging as unrepentant sin is, it's more damaging still when children see it. And even little kids can detect hypocrisy, don't they? They, they? they see it. How come mommy can, daddy can do that, but I can't? If you have contempt for the Bible's authority to define and rebuke sin, how can you expect your children to submit to the Bible's authority themselves? Another one for parents. Sorry, parents. Do you distinguish between your preferences and scriptural commands, at least for your older children? There are house rules that Joan and I don't have to abide by, like bedtime at a certain time or no cookies before dinner. But other rules are for all of us, like the golden rule. Your children should come to understand which rules are temporary and which ones are eternal, and that even mom and dad have to obey God's rules. And now I have some comments for everyone now. Are you yourself submitting to the authority of God's word. Again, I'll quote the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men prepared and superintended by the Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction and all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command and all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge and all that it promises. In our house, we used to have a little sign that said, obey, right away, all the way, in a happy way. Remember that? We should, we should put it up again. Obey, right away, all the way, in a happy way. I'm not sure what happened to it. I, I think maybe Joan took it down because it made our house guests uncomfortable. But in any case, this little sign sums up how we are to submit ourselves to God's word. Obey right away, 
all the way in a happy way. We obey right away, immediately, without arguing or waiting. We obey all the way, completely, not in half measures. We don't pick out our favorite commands that come easiest to us. And we obey in a happy way. And this gets down to our attitude. It's not pleasing to God when we obey through gritted teeth. We should have the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 119. Verse 16 says, I shall delight in your statutes. Verse 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And Psalm 1, verse 167 says, My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. If something is the word of man only, I can take it or leave it. But if a word is from God, it has authority. I'd better listen to it and follow it. Wellness passage here in James. We've seen this several times already, but just to remind ourselves, James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does." So in order to obey it completely, we have to understand what it says. We must search the scriptures to understand all that God requires of us. And as it is the authority over us, we need to submit to it for God's sake. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this reminder of the authority of scripture. You have not left us to grope in the dark. That's what your will is. You have given us many commands in your word that we are to know and understand and to obey. Right away, all the way, in a happy way. We pray that you would give us the grace to do that. Where we have fallen down, where we have not submitted, may we repent. May we repent uh, publicly if necessary to those we've sinned against to let the scriptures guide us, teach us, correct us, to train us in our righteousness. We pray that you would use your word in us today and the days to come to transform us into the very image of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.